Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another Down the Pub at History Hack. Alex, what have we got on today? Well, welcome to the Mary Rose, everybody, uh, our virtual boozer. Uh, we got another pub debate for you. We're moving away from football again because, frankly, Alina nearly died of boredom um, last week and didn't have a clue what was going on. And as funny as that was for the rest of us, listening to her try and pronounce Zidane um, is more than I can stand. So let me introduce everybody to you. As ever, we've got some enthusiasts with us who have volunteered to come on and argue um, for the most iconic battle in British history. Um, so first of all, we have Owen Staten. Hi, Owen. Hello, how are you? Uh, good, thanks. So Owen's a storyteller and performer from Wales. Uh, Owen, how is lockdown in Wales? It's all right. It's, yeah, I'm working quite a lot, so that's, that's quite good. It's, um, yeah, it's quiet, but it's nice. It's good. Brilliant. Okay. And then we have also our bar flies back. Um, you know, when you go to the bar and then you kind of adopt someone you don't really know. And then from then on, every time you go in the pub, they join you. It's James. Hello, James. <laughs> well, I am trained as an archaeologist and an archaeologist is always down the pub. So yeah, let's face too, too it. Right. Yeah. And also is, bar fly is better than sad drunk at the bar with no friends. So let's go with bar fly. <laughs> 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 okay, um, <clears throat> judges today. Uh, Johnny will be with us shortly. Uh, he's on a work call. He's he's adulting, which is frankly disgusting. We also have the not so honourable judge Holmes with us. You're right, Holmes. Evening. How's Collywood this week? Uh, I think it's all right. I've not. I've only ventured about eight yards out of my house, but those eight yards are looking pretty good. Excellent. Um, we also have uh, Alina's going to do some judging today. God help us. You right, Alina? Yeah, I'm going to do some judging today. Not that how I've got d- any favourites today. <laughs> how, d- how did the, uh, yeah, not blatantly not got a favourite today. How did the IKEA self-assembly furniture go this afternoon? The fact that you ended up going to bed for two hours says not that well to me. <laughs> Listen, trying to get it up the stairs was the worst thing because it's so heavy. Well, I don't envy you. Um, you should make sure you put your foot Fitbit on because it literally does all your calories um, screwing together a bookshelf from Ikea. Um, you can claim all the credit. Uh, we also have today uh, Bethany Moore. Bethany's a First World War historian and a battlefield guide. Uh, she's also on the same team as me as in Team Work Secure, uh, which is pretty epic because not only do we go uh, traipsing around doing battlefield stuff, but we also build farms and stuff in Africa. Hey, Bethany. Hey, everyone. You're right. How's lockdown? Lockdown's going really well up here uh, in the Midlands where I am. Not too bad. Um, just trying to not get too bored, I suppose, really. 
Excellent. Okay. And in terms of experts today, oh, we've just spoilt you rotten um, today. We have with us Peter Johnson, who's Head of Research and Academic Services at the National Army Museum. Hey. Hey, how are you guys doing? Not bad. How is lockdown? Are you furloughed like all other museum people? No, I'm, I'm, I'm actually pretty lucky. Um, and the museum is still sort of actively still, well, open digitally. So, you know, if you go online, you'll see all the tons of stuff. We still keep pushing up, pushing on uh, online through the website and that sort of thing. So, you know, from, uh, from rural Hertfordshire, we seem to be able to, to tick that over and, and do pretty well. Awesome. And we couldn't have the army without representing the glorious Royal Navy. So we have Dave Hartley, who's one of the managers at the National Museum of the Royal Navy. Hey, Dave. Hello. How's, how's lockdown for you? Um, not too bad. So um, I currently am not on furlough, but I'm being moved to furlough next week. Uh, I've been asked to do that. Um, but I've been on site just checking on the ships and the collections and the museum, just going around, making sure that everything's fine, nothing's happened. But luckily, because it's been so beautiful and sunshine, an absolute joy to walk around outside and enjoying that sort of sort atmosphere and i checked on victory and there today so that was quite fun um when i had i've been around warrior more times than i've imagined over the last three weeks more than i've probably ever done the last <laughs> five years excellent and then we've brought back basically one of the most popular people we have ever had on history hack she went shooting to the top of our little chart um that we don't release because it, it's pissy but um she was so so popular uh claire mully hey claire hey pressure's on then hello yeah well every every man i know that listens to history hack is in love with you now no pressure excellent hopefully she tells you. <laughs> okay and because johnny's late um, and because I like to wind him up, uh, Johnny wants to argue for a particular battle today. So I said that was fine. But then what I thought I'd do is bring in another judge. So Judge Clive, are you there? I am now. After he crapped all over your choices the last two weeks, I thought you might like the opportunity to turn the tables. Well, I'm going to be very objective and non-judgmental. I'll listen to his case and then I'll dismiss it. Excellent. <laughs> all right then. <laughs> Okay, so let's get started. Um, I'm going to go to Owen first, because Owen's picked the earliest battle that we're going to talk about um, tonight. So, Owen, tell us, what have you picked as the most iconic battle in British history? Well, when it comes to iconic battles in British history, there is only one. I mean, 1066. If I ask anybody outside this pub to mention one date in history, they will say 1066 on the Battle of Hastings. Tell us about the battle. Ah, what is there? It's a story like no other. We've got kings, we've got betrayal, we've got promises, we've got deathbed confessions, we have invasions, we have battles fought all over the country, all accumulating in the Battle of Hastings. We have Including an arrow in the eye, yeah? Possibly an arrow (laughs) in the eye, yeah, it could be, could be. Or certainly a king death, but a king dying in battle as well. We have the fate of a nation resting on in a field in Hastings. We have our battle. It wasn't called battle then, was it? But um, we have everything going for it. A Norman invasion, Harold fighting the Battle of Stamford Bridge, not that one, and, um, and winning that, and then full of hubris, marching his army down south to face William. We have um, him trying to do the same thing as he did in Stamford Bridge. We have him trying to ambush the, uh, the Norman army, and yet the Normans see him coming. The Saxons line up on top of the hill at Senlac Hill, and we have a clash of cultures. We have the, uh, the shield wall of the Saxons lining up there, all shouting, oot, 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 trying to get the Normans out. We've got the Norman cavalry, we've got Breton archers, we've got them starting to 
fire on the Saxons. We have a king in the field. His two brothers are in the field. We have Duke William of Normandy. William the Bastard himself is in the field. Um, and the fate of a nation resting on this one day. And the whole history, um, the whole lineage of history from that point onwards focuses on this one day. Harold has it all to go for. He has all to play for. He could, he's just won the Battle of Stamford Bridge. He's a hero in the country. Everybody loves him and he is ultra confident and he arrives there. He picks a brilliant defensive location and all he has to do is see out the day and see William off and chase him back into the sea. Would be absolutely fantastic and probably be known as the best warrior king Britain has ever seen. The day starts with the Norman drums starting to, starting to bang their noises, bang their noises. Then there's archers are fired up into the Saxon lines. The Saxons hold their shield wall steady and hold it firm. Then a, the Normans send their cavalry thundering up the hill, smashing into the shield wall. There's all these cries, there's horses whinnying and wounded and being driven back. The Saxons are pushing forward. The Normans are being driven back. The archers are still starting to fire. And then the Normans start breaking and running. Is it a plan? Is it done? Um, or are the Saxons just winning? We don't know. But Harold starts losing control and his troops start rushing down the hill after the Normans who turn and then start killing them. Harold is shouting to his brothers, Gurf and Leofric, stop this, stop this. We're going to lose it. All we have to do is see the end of the day and from night to fall and England stays as it is a Saxon country. The day gets longer. Harold has more reinforcements trickling in, trickling in. He's gaining confidence. At one point, it's even thought that William is killed and his army starts to break and run. But then he rides in front of his troops, taking his helmet off and shouting, I live, I live. And then the confidence starts to build. All Harold has to do is hang on to the end of this frosty day and see the time between times when it's neither night nor day. The sun is gone and the sky is grey. And all it starts to go when the Normans keep coming and coming and coming until in the end they break through and whether it's an arrow in the eye or an attack by a load of Norman horsemen that hack Harold down and the fate of our whole country changes in that one moment. Harold dies, both his brothers die, there's no Saxon heir as such. William is now, has a base in England with no one to fight against him and our whole culture changes at that one point. And Harold won that battle, everything would now be different. Everything would be a totally different way of looking at it. We go into a French-based sort of Norman uh, uh, monarchy, which continues to this day. Language changes. Everybody, all the land is changed. You know, with the Magna Carta, all that is brought in castles all over the country. It would all be different if that arrow hadn't hit Harold in the eye on the 14th of October, 1066. It happened in Britain. It's one of the biggest uh, battles to ever happen in Britain. And you mentioned to anybody, name a British battle, name a famous thing that happened in Britain, they will tell you 1066. I'm oh, sorry, that needs a round of applause. I was like, no, we did that all from memory, man. You can tell you're a storyteller. I was like, that sounds like quite a vague job description, but fucking hell, that was good. Holmes, you want to try and rip that down? I've got a couple of questions. I mean, it's very well delivered and quite persuasive, especially in terms of the legacy. Um, the the Welsh I... accent helps, doesn't it? With the persuasion, because it's a yeah. little bit threatening. A little bit. <laughs> Alina's <laughs> terrified of Welsh people. You wait till we interview Yoan <laughs> Griffith later. She's going to be... <laughs> in, 
I mean, in terms of the size of the battle, what, mm-hmm. what, were, the, what were the sort of numbers of each side? It's not really known. It wasn't massive uh, size-wise. It was about um, maybe seven to 10,000 each size. So it wasn't a huge battle in terms of numbers. Had Harold waited a bit longer, maybe in London, he could have doubled the size of his army, but his confidence got the better of him and he marched there. But it wasn't about the size of it. It was about what happened on the day and the implications were massive. Yeah, agreed. One thing I've always wondered, and this is possibly just my own benefit, is um, he turned up, they have the battle, and then he won, and then he he suddenly becomes then king. How come there was no sort of resistance? I think Harold um, was a bit of a bully boy. The Godwinsons um, ruled a lot of England. They were quite thuggish, and when they went, there was no one to fight. Bearing in mind that um, Earls Morcar and Edwin had been lost just before Stamford Bridge up north. Tostig, Harold's wayward brother, had already gone. So all the main forces in, uh, in, uh, in Britain at the time, all the main sort of Saxon lords, um, got a bit scared and backed off. And then did, um, did Harold actually have a claim to the throne? I think there's rumours about a whispered deathbed confession by Edward the Confessor. I think... Uh, all the um, all the claims were quite tenuous. William had a claim. Harold Hadrada had a claim, and Harold, Harold Godwinson claimed to have a claim. Um, but of course, there's stories about him going and visiting um, William as well, which is another point. We have this like um, brotherhood between the two of them, um, who were friends, pledged to each other. Harold had actually spent time in Normandy and allegedly sworn on a on a saint's relics to uh, to let William um, have the kingship which he reneges on later on as well. So we've got that as well, that little bit of treachery as well. Yeah, because that bit's all recorded on the bio tapestry, isn't it, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, which is somewhat um, uh, you know, uh, in favour of the Normans, isn't it? It was done by uh, Duke, or, uh, Duke William's brother, Odo, who was uh, a, um, a cleric at the time, a priest, and he actually uh, fought in battle with a club because he didn't want to spill blood, so he just crushed <laughs> skulls instead. <laughs> I like it. He's a humanitarian. It is quite, quite samey, the bio tapestry, isn't it? It's like watching a director's cut or something. You just want to get to the battle, but you've got endless, <laughs> endless woven knights to get past again. It's like that third, of the, third Lord of the Rings film that lasted for about eight hours and you just wanted to get to the fight at the end. <laughs> Well, also, I refused, to, I refused to have the headset, basically because I wanted to get around it in 20 minutes because the pubs were opening about that. Same. <laughs> but bearing in mind as well, Odo commissioned that, and when you commission your own tapestry, you put yourself in it a lot. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. That's when it was made in Britain, wasn't it? Yeah, apparently so. Apparently it was made not far from um, um, Hastings itself by, um, by uh, English weavers. And, uh, and was taken to um, uh, to Normandy, and it was re um, it was restored in the nineteenth century. And the part where it shows Harold having the arrow in the eye, uh, which isn't mentioned in any other sources apart from the the, the tapestry, uh, a lot of people think that he, his hand was actually holding a spear at that point. So we don't know um, whether or not he was killed with the arrow in the eye, but it makes a hell of a good story. Alina, okay. have you got any questions? Yeah, I want to know how long did the battle last. It lasted about probably about eight hours. I mean, it started with a break of dawn. Um, there was a frost uh, on, on the ground. The, uh, the Norman cavalry started thundering up the hill. And Harold just had to hang on, hang on until the sun started to set because William had nowhere to go. 
and all he had to do was get to nightfall. He must have been looking to the sky every two minutes, praying for that sun to go down. But he just ran out of time, ran out of men, ran out of brothers, and uh, fell to the floor. <laughs> And the wind was against him as well, wasn't it? Because if the wind had been blowing in a different direction, William couldn't have landed where he did. It would have been a lot less opportune, the place where he would have had to land on British soil or English soil. Well, yeah, as well. And um, William almost lost his entire fleet, you know, leaving um, Normandy. Um, and um, the, the, all the omens were against him as well. He almost lost his entire fleet. When he lands in Pevensey, he trips and falls. Um, and all his men sort of gasp and wonder. But he grabs a load of um, sand from the ground and says, look, I've got the country in my hand. And sort of turns it all around. We're looking at what, what a leader he must have been as well. I mean, his army starts to crumble during the battle. And he lifts his visor and says, look, I'm alive, I'm alive. Apparently he had about five horses killed from under him. So he's right in the thick of it, Duke, uh, Duke William. What a guy. <laughs> Clive, have you got any questions? Yeah. Um one thing I must say is I saw the Bayo Tapestry last year and it wasn't as animated as that. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> to, to what extent can you describe it as a British battle, particularly with a Welsh accent? Because it seemed to be remarkably English to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 fine. I mean, Harold as well, he had a, um, a, a hell of a reputation in Wales. Uh, he fought lots of battles against the Welsh as well um, prior to Hastings obviously so um, and a ruthless reputation but a Saxon king yep Saxon at the time country was a um, uh, a Saxon kingdom and um, yeah but everything um, as regards Britain from that point so happened on that day and that's it other than laying waste to the north of England about which we can have varying views um <laughs> The one, the, the the real consequence of Hastings was economic advances brought in by the Normans. But to what extent would those economic advances have come in any event? We don't know, do we? We don't know what sort of what would have happened had uh, had England remained a Saxon kingdom. Um, we don't know what the religious implications for were for. Um, we don't know uh, as regards to the army, the culture. Um, I mean, they went from a very uh, a, a, the, the Saxon style of culture into the Norman culture. Um, it takes a long time; it takes a couple of hundred years. You've got Hereward of the Wake, you've got Robin Hood. All those cultural icons come from the, the fight against the Saxons against the Normans as well. But we don't know where how different we would have been um, a thousand years down the line. But all I do know is our history would be totally different. Do know uh, that had they not come in and put their own nobles everywhere, then all of these really rich aristocrat kids that don't have to work for a living now uh, would probably have to have jobs. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right. And um, I just going back on it, I mean, the arrow in the eye, um, the falling and grabbing the sand, the, um, the almost dying, um, all that. There are so many legends associated uh, about it. Building Battle Abbey on the site of Harold's death. Uh, um I mean, all these things are great. Are they true? We don't know. But when, when um, legend becomes fact, print the legend, you know? <laughs> Thank you so much, Owen. That was a blinding start. Um, I, I was like, Hastings, <laughs> but that was actually really, really interesting. Brilliantly done. Um, let's go on to James. You. James, you're fast forwarding a few hundred years, aren't you? And being James, you'll have an awkward suggestion that no one be expecting to go for it. Yeah, I'm going for probably one of the most underrated British battles in history. As Shakespeare called it, the Charnel House, where many English sons died. I'm going for the Battle of Towton. 
from the War of the Roses. Fought on Palm Sunday, 1461, during a freak snowstorm. The numbers of the battle from the Chronicles of London, they said up to 200,000, but it's widely agreed by many historians that it's about 50,000, which is actually 1-2% to of the population of England at the time. It's not a small battle by any means. Arguably the largest fought on British soil, although that's up to date. The casualties, uh, the widely accepted number is 28,000 casualties, but that could be as low as 10,000. But still, even then, that's one in five of those that took part. It was the, in my opinion, the definitive battle of the War of the Roses. Some might argue the Battle of Barnet in 1471, Tweetsbury, or Bosworth in 1485. However, for me, although they're included in the War of the Roses, they are arguably separate. Uh, three quarters of the English peerage took part in the Battle of Towton. So I think it was eight on the Yorkist side, 19 on the Lancastrian side, which does say a lot about the semi-religious power of the king, even if he was incompetent. Um, there's very few historical detailed accounts of the battle. It's potentially initially lasted three hours with the initial engagements, but up to ten hours, according to the chronicler of Henry the Seventh. Oh God! This is where English chivalry really died, in my opinion. There's the phrase the French, the flower of French knighthood, died at the siege of Nicopolis. I argue Towton was where the flower of English knighthood died. Out of 42 knights that were captured after the battle, all of them were killed. Normally, they would be ransomed, and obviously ransomed for quite a lot, but 42 of them were all killed. Um, The casualties were taken from Herald's estimates. It's argued that 20,000 of the casualties were Lancastrian, 8,000 were Yorkist. I mean, if we do take that figure, 28,000, that's from half a percent to a percent of the English population at the time. So one in a hundred English people. That just boggles my mind, to be fair. Uh, Does the equivalent today of like, because my math is terrible, is that not the equivalent today of like seven million people? No, the one percent. What is it? One so percent uh, would be seven hundred thousand yeah, people. Yeah, so that's like to quite a few cities gone. Um, seven high-profile nobility, at least, were killed on the Lancastrian side. Only one on the Yorkist. Then, at the aftermath, fourteen Lancaster peers were named traitors. Ninety-two were attainted. Twenty-four of them MPs. I think most of them were pardoned in the end. That didn't die on the battlefield. Um. Yeah, like I said, one of the largest battles. I disagree with the, um, the historian Hill's assessment that it didn't bring about change because it did bring about quite a lot of change because when you consider 42 knights, at least seven peerage killed, well, eight peerage killed, you've suddenly got all these young generations of kids without their parents and eventually by the time you get around to Bosworth, all these were around the same age as Henry the Eighth, uh, Henry the Seventh. Sorry, so that he all around his age instead of dealing with older and younger. 
you had people race to knighthood, you had people race to the peerage, and it's just a big change in English society, especially with the numbers lost. Also, from a scientific and archaeological point of view, it's probably the most definitive battle in British history because from the scientific point of view, battlefield archaeology, it was the first one done scientifically when we found the graves of the 61 individuals, 37 of which were extensively studied. I should know because it was part of my dissertation looking at the um, skeletal reports of that. I mean, so it was insight into medieval life, the people that fought, what diseases they faced, injuries they had. I mean, one guy alone had 10 wounds to his face. And some of these were healed. Some eventually killed him. Most of them had multiple wounds, uh, mainly to the forearms and hands, if not the crania. I mean, he had penetration wounds, blunt force, sharp force trauma. Uh, the age group was something like the youngest they found was 18, 19. The oldest, about 45. And they did a facial reconstruction of the 45-year-old. I'll have to find it out and send it to you another time. But it was just incredible scientific finds. And it inspired, well, not inspired, but it set the standard for the rest of the battles where mass graves or even individuals are found. I know Mary Rose was technically before, but that was another thing entirely. Um, but when I think of things like Ridgeway Hill, the mass grave there, the Battle of Visby, I know they need to do more work on that because the last work was done in the 30s. But this battle changed so much historically and scientifically, and it's so underrated, partly because of effectively Tudor propaganda and how much they upped the Battle of Bosworth and Shakespeare. But the Battle of Towton, it's the bloodiest battle on English soil, one of the largest, if not the largest. It, it has to be arguably the best battle in British history. What say a you? Good bloody, a good bloody battle is always a good thing. And I, I do take your point that if you just want to go for gore, this one probably wins hands down. But was it really that influential? Did it really dramatically change history? And that's, every battle had some impact upon history, but did it have a seismic change, like, for example, Hastings did? Is there anything we can point to that would, is so different because of that battle, rather than... Is it came afterwards. potentially, are you arguing that had so many people not been killed at Towton, the Tudors might never have got the throne? Is it, I'm kind of getting that from you. Yes, that, that's potentially the case. I mean, even though it was a Yorkist victory, there was a lot lost on the Lancastrian and Yorkist side. I mean, if enough Lancastrians have survived, I mean, it could have been Henry VI and then his son in charge when the king made a switch sides in 1471. <laughs> so wasn't Henry VI's son, but yeah, I, I take your point officially, his son. <laughs> yeah, technically. Yeah. So um, basically he was in a catatonic schizophrenic uh, trance when it was conceived and then his wife presented him with a baby nine months later and went, look what we did! Um, it didn't happen, but yeah. Yeah, although at the same time, you could also argue if the kingmaker, the Earl of Warwick, hadn't been given a lot of territory and power, 
would he have been as influential in 1471? Would they have had the power? Would the Yorkists have still in power? Because after that failure, you've got 14 years until the Battle of Bosworth, and it was an attempt in 1483. I mean, the Battle of Bosworth itself was such a close-run thing, and it was only because of last-minute betrayal that uh, the Tudors won. So... If there hadn't been so many killed at Towton, especially from the peerage, I just couldn't see something like even Barnet or Bosworth happening. But aren't, aren't battles like Bosworth rather like football matches? It doesn't matter if you had all the possession. It's about scoring goals. And in Bosworth, the Lancastrians scored the goal by killing the other side's king. Are you saying that James is creating a bit of an Arsenal-like argument for his battle. Yeah. <laughs> well, just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I, I, can, I can see your point there, Clive. Um, at the case, though, it was literally just pure luck with that battle, whereas Towton, it just changed so much, and it's just so underrated and so forgotten about, even in the 20th and 21st century, until the discovery of the mass grave in 96, that... It why, just seems why, criminal. It feels like Tudor propaganda, especially with Bosworth, has overshadowed it. But why don't we know more? I mean, now with horrible histories and everything else like that, surely just the pure blood and guts of it, it means it's worth a feature-length film. It, the, the problem comes with the historical sources. We've only got a few in regards to the Chronicles of London, the letters of Edward and an archbishop, the ambassador to Milan... <coughs> And then there was another source, but that wasn't made available to historians until 1891 about. And because of some mistakes in it, most historians at the time disregarded it. Um, So it's a lack of historical sources, but then that's where the archaeology makes up for it. Because we found the mass grave, we know exactly where the battlefield is which there is some dispute on things like the Battle of Hastings and the Battle of Bosworth on their exact locations. I know William built an abbey on a hill, which is also now part of a private school, speaking about uh, nobility. But, yeah, it's because we know the location of the battle, the archaeological evidence, we know a lot more about it than just historical. I think it... killing half the aristocracy is a good idea, but why didn't they go the whole hog and kill the rest? <laughs> Says you with that accent. Go on, Claire. Oh, I just think that this sounds like it would be a brilliant historical silent witness. That's the way to bring it back. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like it sounds more like Game of Thrones than Hastings, if I'm honest. Oh, it definitely was. I mean, the whole War of the Roses was Towton, especially. I mean, uh, Norfolk's forces didn't arrive until after three hours, and that's when the tide of the battle changed. I mean, you've got the kingmaker, the Earl of Warwick. He wasn't at Towton. He was actually injured in a previous battle. It's one of the few battles, if not the only battle he wasn't a part of at the time, I think, um, before he switched sides at the Battle of Barnet um, because he went out of favour with King Edward. And they did a whole TV series on that, which is quite amusing. Uh, Holmes, I can see by your face you're not convinced. Well, no, I mean, I think the whole Wars of the Roses thing, 
it, on the one hand, it's quite interesting, but I imagine people at the time, it was slightly tedious, and it just went on for ages, and you're just, you know, you've got all these poor people inscripted into the army just to try and placate the whims of a sort of sociopath and psychopaths as and when they come along. I mean, if, I mean, if this battle was that important, even the incumbent king at the time didn't bother to turn up for it. Um, well, he was in no state to turn up to it. it to be fair, useless. they did take him in his this because this is all I remember about my A levels is these stories of how they used to take Henry the Sixth in basically in a wheelchair throne um, in a catatonic trance. Um, they think it was uh, some form of schizophrenia. They used to wheel him out onto the battlefield um, and surround him with knights and fight the battle around him, but they didn't do that for this one. Yeah, he was in York at the time, um, which was basically for safety, uh, because especially as Edward was on the field at Towton, uh, it would have been too much of a risk. And considering the casualty numbers and how bloody the battle was, and from the evidence we have, it was the right decision to have him in York, especially as he was able to escape to Scotland. And also, I think like Clive, I'm, I'm struggling with the legacy of this, in that the Wars of the Roses went on until 1487, so it didn't even resolve this issue once and for all. Uh, it's an interesting point. Like I said, I find this the most definitive battle of the War of the Roses. When you consider something like Barnet and Bosworth, they're included in the War of the Roses, but in offence, Barnet was its own coup and invasion. Bosworth was its own coup and invasion with Henry Tudor's tenuous link to the Lancastrians. And it's just been, it was almost like Tudor propaganda to put it all together. It was easiest to put it all together to help prove their point that Henry was incompetent, then Edward was an usurper, then Richard III was an even bigger usurper, and then Henry Tudor's come in and he's the god true king, blah, blah, blah. It was easier for them to put it all together because it wasn't war all the time. I mean... You'd have thought, though, you'd have thought that people would start to question the divine right of kings by this time, wouldn't you, a little bit? Yeah, but that's the thing about Towton. You've got 19 of the peerage on the Lancastrian side, so it just shows the semi-religious power of the king, even if he's an incompetent schizophrenic, that 19 of the smartest and strongest lords of the land still follow the Lancastrian side over the Yorkist. And the only reason the Yorkists had so many, which was about eight, was because by an act of parliament, uh, the Yorkists were meant to be the actual heirs after an earlier civil war. Um, and then the heir was killed. And so suddenly they're like, hold on, the king's broken this act of parliament. And then the uh, a load of them joined the Yorkist side. Alina, you got any questions? I'm lost. No, I'm just, this is not my time period. So I have no idea what king is who, where, why and how. But I'm going to say, James, you are incredibly lovely. And <laughs> that's about as far as it goes. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have failed to entertain a leader. That's cold, man. That was burn. Um, uh, right. Okay. I think it's time to refill glasses. Okay. We're back and we have more drinks. And uh, so... We're going now to the 18th century, which is massively exciting. From the National Museum of the Royal Navy, we have with us the fabulous Dave Hartley. Hi, Dave. Hello. And we've we've uh, exchanged some sneaky messages already because uh, I'm um, kind of on your side for this. Um, tell us which battle you've picked as the most iconic b- 
British battle of all time and why? So I picked um, the uh, Battle of Trafalgar, um, which uh, might seem as a by choice since I work with um, HMS Victory in my day to day. But I do believe it's the most decisive battle in the in British history. Boom! Um, Mic drop. You can you can finish there. You've won. I can, I can, as far I can, as I'm concerned, <laughs> give us some reasons why. Um, so the so the battle the battle itself is um, is part of the Napoleonic Wars, um, and it's a very definitive moment in making sure that British um, naval dominance is assured. Um, because up to that point, the French and Spanish fleet present a threat to the Royal Navy and also a threat to Great Britain in an invasion plan um, by Napoleon. The prelude to the Trafalgar is that the French and Spanish fleet are, are combined. Uh, Villeneuve um, wants to meet up with um, more of his fleet in the Caribbean, um, so he manages to slip past um, Nelson, who is blockading um, the fleet in Toulon in uh, March 1805. They go meet um, the fleet in the Caribbean. Nelson chases after him, and they, go, they want to try and get to where the troops are in Boulogne. Um, but the uh, British fleet uh, chase them, and they send back a good intelligence report to make sure that they are intercepted. And this then ends up um, with the battle, and this is the uh, Battle of Cape Finisterre, which happens July in 1805. This then causes uh, Villeneuve to um, try to rock things channel. He then sees another fleet. He then retreats back to Cadiz, which then um, enrages Napoleon, who says, what a navy, what an admiral, all those sacrifices for naught. And it kind of changed the strategy a little bit um, for Napoleon. He sort of took his eye off invading Britain, and then he went off with the... Um, or the Arnold campaign against uh, the Austrians instead on the land. Um, so while the fleet was in Cadiz, Nelson saw an opportunity. Um, he, he gathered, he waited until, until September of 1805 to leave Portsmouth. Um, we all know that they all famously, it was a bit of a, Nelson was quite a celebrity at this point. He's very famous, been in um, many famous victories before this. Um, he's quite an iconic character before Trafalgar. Um, where he'd obviously had been involved in had injuries, he'd lost, his, he'd lost partial sight in his right eye, he'd lost his right arm, he'd, had, he'd already very famous from the Battle of the Nile as well. Um, so when he was sent left Portsmouth, it was like a celebrity was leaving and there was thousands of people wanted to come see him. He had to leave a different route because of the amount, amount of people there. He waved them off, they cheered him, and then he sailed off to meet the fleet um, near Cadiz. And then, and then during this, uh, Villeneuve is in uh, the port with the French and combined Spanish fleet. Um, Nelson knew he was outnumbered in this battle. He, he, there was more ships on the combined French and Spanish fleets. Um, they had more guns. They had a lot of crews. But what Nelson knew that the Royal Navy had combined French and Spanish fleets didn't have was a well-disciplined crew. They were well-trained in their gunnery. They could fire the guns in 90 seconds and reload again and reload again in that time. The French and Spanish fleets, while they had a very inexperienced crew, took about two to five minutes depending on the training of the fleets. So that ratio about two to one firing was very beneficial when you come to a very aggressive start to the battle. So for the 9th of October, he brought his uh, captains together, had a meeting. He laid out the Trafalgar Memorandum where he famously wants laid out his battle plans, where he wanted to cut, use two columns to cut the French, French Spanish fleet in, in two. 
encircle the middle of it where um, he can then bring a pell-mell battle and bring, bring decisive action. Because usually these are ships of the line, they fight in lines, they fight until there is an outcome. Usually they're quite indecisive, but this, he wanted to go straight for it. It had been used before, it had been used before by Admiral Duncan, it had been used before by Admiral Jervis as well. So he'd, he'd seen this and learnt this and knew this was a good tactic to make decisive action. So he was patrolling, he had frigates that patrolling off Cadiz to keep an eye out on the French fleet and Spanish fleet to make sure are they sneaking out? While well, his fleet stayed quite far back, keep an eye on it. On the, then on the 18th of October, or the 19th, sorry, I'm not reading my own writing, um, the fleet um, sailed out. It took two days for the French and Spanish fleet to come out because they were inexperienced. And also Villeneuve um, got wind that he was about to be replaced as well. Napoleon sent someone else to replace him by the fleet. He was Napoleon was fed up with Villeneuve, so he sent someone to replace him. Villeneuve heard about this. He said, I'm not having this, and he decided to sail out before this replacement arrived. So they sailed out on uh, the 20th of October. On the 21st morning of the 21st, they were spotted by the frigate fleet. Then, the, um, then Nelson's fleet and Collingwood's fleet then got into, their, got into their lines and started sailing towards the um, French and Spanish combined fleet. Now, this takes a bit of time. They're quite far apart. There was not much wind. So they had plenty of time in the, the hours to go to the battle to take everything down and, and get everything ready to go. Uh, Villeneuve saw this coming and he started to turn, try to turn back towards Cadiz. And this is when the two lines started going toward, towards the French and Spanish fleet and the battle was about to begin. So about 11.45, Nelson went up to the uh, poop deck, spoke to uh, John Pascoe, who was a signal officer on board. This is when he uh, issued his famous signal to boost the morale of the men and to send his final signal before the battle uh, begun. So he went up, instructed uh, Pasco to um, instruct the signal that England, ex um, England expects that every man would do his duty. Now, instead of expects, he was going to put confides, but confides takes more flags to spell out than expects. So they changed that. Um, it, it, but on the instance, duty set takes seven flags to spell out in this signal book. So, a bit of a change. They hoisted that up. It went up into the, into the mizzen, mizzen mast, uh, and it created a, a great, great deal of enthusiasm amongst the fleet. Collingwood saw it as well. He initially scoffed, but when someone explained to him what the signal was, he met with great enthusiasm and spread it amongst his fleet as well. So, during, while this was going on, the first shots started opening fire. They started uh, pummeling the um, two columns that were coming towards so the Royal Sovereign is uh, where Collingwood is on, and the Nelson is obviously on HMS Victory. They are getting hit left, right, and centre by the French combined Spanish fleet. They can't fire back because they are he they're heading straight at the, um, at the French and Spanish fleet. So they are crossing the T at this point, which in the ship of the line movement is not where you want to be. During this engagement, um, Victory's wheel was shot out. Um, Marines were killed. This is not, a, 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 not the most uh, fun bit to be involved in. It's quite dangerous. They're in a very vulnerable position. So during this, the wheels been shut out. They had to cut shot out. They had to change the um, steering system by going to the tiller flat and changing that round very quickly. Um, and then the Royal Sovereign cut through the line, went past the Santa Ana, and fired a devastating uh, double-shotted broadside through the back of it, raking it and and causing immense damage. Same as the Victory. About half an hour later, it went straight through the through the line and cut around the back of the Bussonter, which is with the ship that Villeneuve was on, and, and fired a raking broadside through the back of it, killing about a third of the crew on board. 
So we're almost instantly disabling the ship from fighting. And victory turned in, started fighting with the Rudu Tabla. Um, the Busantere was thought to be attacked first, but it was the Rudu Tabla the victory chose to attack. Um, this became very vicious fighting, very close combat. Um, Nelson had instructed all his crew, all his captains, that just put your ship against the side of another enemy and you can't do no wrong, just, uh, and then you keep firing. He left that to that chance to his captains to fight that, and that's why they're painted yellow and black, so they know what their ships are, to stop firing on their own ships through these very chaotic battles, full of smoke, noises going all around you, people dying left, right, and center all around you, so you need to make sure you keep clear and fight. And this is where the training and discipline comes into it because they knew what they had to do. They had to keep fighting to make sure they aren't killed themselves or boarded. Um, so during this opening exchange, it became very, very vicious fighting. The Rudu Tabula and Victory's mast became entangled. Um, they were fired. They were grenades being thrown down on the deck. There were snipers in the mast. And this is when Nelson, standing on the quarter deck where he, where he was pacing around, was shot. Uh, Hardy said he turned and he saw Nelson trying to steady himself on his arms and fell to the deck. And Hardy came over and, and Nelson said, they've done me. They finally, they finally got me. I am dead. And he'd been shot through his, through his, um, he'd been shot through his left sh shoulder, went down through his, down through and, and lodged in his spine. Um, he was then taken down to the all up deck where he was seen by the surgeon, Be uh, surgeon William Beattie. During this time, victory was in a, not a great, in not in a great state. It was being attacked by the Rudy Tabla. They had a large infantry on the very top of the deck, on the upper deck to fight, and they were trying to board the victory. Victory repelled that twice to make sure it wasn't taken, was taken over. It lost most of its upper masts, and then the, the Temeraire came out of the, uh, came out of the smoke and helped and fired a carronade to clear the upper deck to prevent victory from being boarded. The fighting was very vicious. It lasted for up to, uh, up to about half four in the afternoon. Victory itself, um, fired over, and rounds did it fire? It fired over 3,000 rounds during the, during the battle. It fired and it used seven and a half tons of gunpowder during the battle. And they also used about 3,000 musket balls and three tons of wadding, um, which is the plugs that kind of go into the, to the guns to make sure um, it's a nice tight fit to get as much power out of the, um, the gunpowder as possible. And Nelson himself, um, obviously, as we all know, was uh, passed away about half four, in, half four in the afternoon with Captain Hardy saying, uh, kiss me Hardy, as he was slowly passing away. The... What I believe is the, the key bit about this battle that makes it so definitive in English, in British history is that it's about that they were outnumbered. They were, they had, the Spanish French fleet had 33 ships of the line with much, some of them having much bigger guns. They had the Santisma Trinidad, which had over 130 guns on board. There was 110 gun at Santa Ana, um, and the French fleet as well, which had 80 gun, 80 gun ships of the line as well. But it's the training and it's the discipline that in these sort of moments that, that stand out, that this training and this discipline is something that the Royal Navy still look on today. It's that sort of training that makes it good to react in these situations. And you can see that that sort of attitude is permeated through the First World War. You see the Nelson touch and English specs is always permeated through these sort of things, sort of um, mottos to show the best of the Royal Navy. And it's why the Royal Navy and other armed forces believe that training is the best thing to win, to win these wars and win these battles. I love it. Um, 
I'm pretty much sold. That and obviously if if our navy is destroyed, France invade and we're buggered. Um so for me it wins. Holmes mm-hmm. gone. But then I'm gonna change my mind again by the end of this. Holmes, what do you reckon? I mean, that was, that was my first question. What would have happened if we hadn't been successful? Um, it would have probably been um, a very different change of tactics. I'd imagine the Royal Navy would have been devastated if the, that fleet would have um, either been captured or had to um, retreat back to port because it would have been a long time for this muster of force up again. It potentially would have caused um, panic and, and worry in, back in the UK that an invasion was imminent. But thankfully, during, thankfully, just because of the inexperience of the Spanish and French fleet, that it was luckily taken advantage of by a much better trained um, Royal Navy. It, I mean, that experience that you mentioned a couple of times, and I, I think there were, the French Navy had undergone quite a substantial change in its officer class as a result of the, you know, as a byproduct of the revolution. But on that basis, didn't we have a slightly unfair advantage anyway? Uh, yes, that it, it, it's sometimes always a good thing to have um, your experience on your side, because um, it, 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 that sort of goes back to the training and the experience. Because um, you could have looked at the numbers and thought, "Oh, we're well outnumbered here." They had um, many more guns. Um, there were four thousand seven hundred fifty guns on all sides for this. There was more guns here than Waterloo, but like by a great distance, um, and. It, it shows that they that experience showed through, especially that their reloading took three to five minutes. They said the Spanish fleet, the Spanish crew said it was like the devil was on the other side of those guns. They could they kept firing and it we couldn't respond to it. And also, I, I read something that said that our tactics, and this may be wrong, and if it is, by all means, point it out. But our tactics, we were we were sort of aiming to sink their ships. Whereas they had sort of two levels of tactics. One, they always were mindful that they had a way that they could retreat. And also they didn't go full out to sink our ships. They sort of aimed to try and primarily disable them. Is that right? Um, sinking ships was not the aim in those days. Um, if it, it would have been a last resort to sink a ship. Um, they're quite hard to sink sometimes, the wooden warships. Um, they tried to capture them. Many of them were captured after the battle. I think it's about seven, 15, 17 were captured. Uh, many more were captured after an, in another battle in the 4th of November um, later on, but many of them sank after. There was a massive storm after the battle. I think it was like one of the worst storms for about 100-odd years. There was no wind during the battle, but after they had a huge storm and it wrecked most of the captured ships because they were just full of holes. But you're right. The, the first aim is, is to disable the top. So once the sails are gone, there's no movement of the ship. Then they encroach. Then you encroach. Then you board. Then you disable it, or uh, or pummel them until they strike their colours, and then, and take then it was, over. Did, did boarding take place here in this battle? Yes, uh, victory was nearly boarded quite a few times. Uh, I think a few others were boarded, but many of them struck struck, struck their colours because of the ferocity of this battle. And uh, sorry, struck their colours. Does that mean sort of just throwing in the towel? Pretty much, yeah. It's a surrendering. They just take their colours down and drape it over the back, and it's just—it's just a way of them going. Look, we've had it. That we've had enough. And it's good to capture ships because you learn a lot from like the architecture of the ship, and you can learn a lot about how you can improve your ships. Um, so that the uh, ship Hastings Invincible that um, Sankin is being having items recovered from—that was a ship that was captured from the French, and they learned a lot from that. And victory is developed from that. French captured ship. 
Okay, thanks. Clive, have you got any questions? Yeah. In one of the short-term benefits of winning the Battle of Trafalgar was that the French couldn't invade Britain, which was quite a nice thing. But the longer-term benefit was that it enabled the British to dominate the world's oceans um, in naval terms for the next century. And that enabled them to go out around the world and exploit lots of people and basically um, make a lot of money out of the empire. If the Battle of Trafalgar had been won as it was, but the land battle in Europe was lost and Napoleon had succeeded, would that latter benefit to the British Empire have continued? Or was, it that, was that benefit dependent upon victory on the land? Yeah, I think it's a mixture of, of both. If, if the land battles didn't go very well, the Royal Navy could have just blockaded every port to make sure um, the, the French and Spanish fleets never came out again or just try to go and just cause um, or just take out merchant ships uh, to make sure and, and harass their colonies to make sure their trade is disrupted, um, like an economic blockade to make sure they, they, they can keep paying as much Because um, while the Royal Navy is very strong, they, keep making, they can keep making sure that they don't invade Britain. Uh, it's similar to like the Battle of Britain in the Second World War. They've got control of the most important part of that of that um, invasion threat. The other thing, going back to the, I suppose the first battle, uh, sorry, the second battle we spoke about, Towton. To what extent was this a British battle, or was it very much an English battle? Um, it was a British, uh, a, a British battle. There was many different nationalities on in the fleet. Um, Victory herself had uh, people from Ireland, people from Wales, from Scotland. There was, a, I think, there was American on board. There was a few French on board. So it's quite a multinational crew. There was a Jamaican on board called Thomas Thomas. Um, so it's quite a multi-ethnic crew that come on, on board. And so quite a lot from the British Isles were fighting on board too. Okay, thank you. Alina, it's boats. I'm guessing you just don't care. I'm really sorry, Dave. I really am. I really I hate naval history. Do you know what? You've got really one hour and eleven minutes so to learn got to, to that's love got to be it. A bonus. <laughs> You've got one hour and eleven minutes till we interview Hornblower. Go away yeah. and and learn some respect for naval history before I buy a thirty-two pounder and aim it at your face. But I do have. A, <laughs> I have a question. I do have one. Um, I have two actually. They're probably really pointless and useless, but just so I get involved in the conversation, you know. Um, how many boats were involved in the battle? So, in terms of the um, in terms of the battle, there were thirty three um, ships on the combined uh, Spanish and French fleets, and there were twenty seven in the Royal Navy ships. And these these are the ships of the <laughs> these are the ships of the line. They had some other ships in amongst them, but they were they weren't involved in the battle. They stayed quite far back. That includes the ship Hatred's Pickle, which, which took the news back to the UK to say of the victory of Trafalgar and um, the death of Nelson. And then it's, it, that commemorated in the Trafalgar, Trafalgar way. I love that you shoehorned the word ship into that answer half a dozen times just to teach her a lesson. Boats, my ass. Go on, what's your other question? <laughs> and how many people died overall? Um, thank you, I've overall. Oh, my word. I didn't write down the total death. But on victory, it was 57 on board, and there was uh, over 100, in, 100 injured on board. The British lost 453 dead and 1,208 wounded. 
the French lost 3,373 dead, 1,155 wounded, and 4,000 captured. Plus wow. the Spanish lost over 1,000 dead, 1,300 wounded, and between three and 4,000 captured. So Mic the drop French to the Royal Spanish Navy. lost about 15,000 out of their... Out of their you know what? That's actually quite impressive. So I might actually be leaning towards naval history. Shock horror, horror. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's save you. Uh, let's move on. So we're only fast forwarding 10 years now because um, you couldn't possibly have this debate without having this next one. Um, so, Peter, go for it. What is the most iconic battle in British history? Let me, let me, let me, tell, you, let me tell you about a particular event. The, eight, the 18th of June, 1815. Uh, and this is a day that saw the greatest soldiers of their age face off against each other for the first and only time. And in fact, not even the, the greatest soldiers of their age, but probably of any age uh, and any place. It was an event that had landmarks named after it around the world, uh, had one of the greatest pop songs ever written here about this <laughs> event uh, and immortalised in song. But this is about more than bridges, stations and Swedish pop acts. The, the Battle of Waterloo really is the, the greatest battle that Britain's ever participated in. It saw uh, the, the highest of stakes. You know, this was, a, this was a battle that defined the future of a, a continent and probably the world. It was an event that brought a conclusion to uh, 23 years of war that had ravaged the European continent. Uh, and spoiler alert, the, the British did win. Um, but this was also a war that saw weaponry. This battle saw new tactics. It was a battle of a great coalition, so there was a huge success to it from from the British perspective. Of there, Sean Bean was there as well, so I think that's important. To mention too. Uh, <laughs> but the Battle of Waterloo was one. The, the, the Battle of Waterloo was something you know that, that 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 had great stories of courage and cowardice, but it had the most important thing. It had all the drama you'd think of in any kind of Hollywood script. You know, this is the type of thing that. It was, it was so fantastic that when you did need to dramatise this to turn it into a film, the story itself needed no embellishment. Uh, you know, from 11.30 when Napoleon's Grand Battery opens fire on the Anglo-Allied lines to this, about 7.30 in the evening when he's driven from the field in a rout uh, with the British hot on his heels. This is something that has been hanging in the balance throughout the day. It's been pretty much hanging on the, what you can see 50 yards in front of you, which is the range of a brown best musket. Um, and, you know, through the fire, the smoke, the blood, the noise, the future of Britain was secured uh, and arguably the, the future of the world, given what was commented about Britain's empire uh, and Europe. But I think what also is really key uh, about the battle, and before I go through what happened, is this was the first battle that led to battlefield tourism. Uh, within literally hours of the, of the Battle of Waterloo ended, people were picking over it, taking souvenirs, uh, coming to see what had happened. And that lasted for years afterwards. Uh, and, but also, as well as the, a battle that, that, that changed European history and changed military history, it transformed dentistry uh, as well. That's right, dentistry. Uh, because in the aftermath of Waterloo, there were a huge surfeit of teeth available uh, from people who no longer needed them. Uh, and so dentists were able to take these, turn them into false teeth and mount them in people's jaws. Uh, so the legacy of Waterloo carried on uh, in, in people's mouths and in their hearts for a long time after this. So as a, as, a, as a bit of background for this, Napoleon had obviously been defeated finally in 1814, having made the crucial mistake of trying to invade Russia. Uh, he'd been driven out, he'd been exiled, um, and a key part of that had been the success of the British and their allies advancing up 
through the Peninsula of War under the command of the Duke of Wellington. Uh, well, Sir so, so Arthur Wellesley, who later became the Duke of Wellington. Uh, and for a while in 1814, Europe was at peace. Everyone breathed an enormous sigh of relief. They could look forward to reconstruction. The, the greatest terror to the established order that had been seen, Napoleon Bonaparte, was safely isolated and contained on Corsica. Or so they thought. In 1815, he returned and within weeks had rallied a brand new army to himself. He'd reclaimed his, th- his throne as Emperor of France and he was looking to drive back out the borders of the country and re-establish his empire. Now, who was going to face them? The, the Russians couldn't mobilise and were too far away. The Austrians were decidedly nervous, having been thrashed pretty comprehensively before by Napoleon. Uh, and the Prussians likewise didn't think they could stand themselves. So it fell on the Duke of Wellington, Britain's own, um, you know, the Irishman who hated to be Irish, but Sir Arthur Wellesley, to really rally an army around himself that would stand and fight. Uh, and that's what he had to do. You know, there was no there was no going back from this. He would have to stand and fight Napoleon. He would have to defeat him. Um, the two had never met before, despite the fact they'd been fighting uh, a proxy war for so long. They'd never actually confronted each other on the battlefield. And yet this would be that moment. And this would be the time that would happen. Uh, and on the day itself, 72,000 men of the French army, 75% of them veterans of Napoleon's previous battles, men who knew how to fight and knew how to win, lined up across on the other side of a narrow valley in a place called Mont-Saint-Jean, just south of a battle, uh, just side of a village called Waterloo. Facing them were 68,000 soldiers of the Anglo-Allied army, but crucially of whom uh, only 25,000 were British uh, and uh, only about 7,000 were actually veterans of the Peninsula War. So this was an inexperi- in- inexperienced army. It was an army that was going to have to rely on leadership to carry it through. And Unlike in later years where the British Army has relied heavily on junior leadership, mission command to uh, be successful on the battlefield, that didn't exist at Waterloo. Waterloo lay very much in the mind uh, and in, in, in the brain of Wellington. He was the mastermind. Had anything happened to him and he was in the thick of the, of the, of the danger throughout the day, then the, the battle probably could have been lost. And yet throughout that day, it looked like times that when Britain was going to win and, Britain, and the British Army and the Anglo Allies were going to hold on, uh, at times, it looked like the French were about to sweep them away. Uh, Ney's famous cavalry charges crashing around the British squares, the amazing discipline it took to hold them, uh, the throwing back of Durlon's corps, uh, you know, face to face, bayonet, sword, lance, you know, this stuff is, is, is being fought in a hell of a close quarter. You know, we talked about, uh, all the guns at Trafalgar, and yes, there are less guns at Waterloo, but there's a lot of guns in, a, in about a, twi- a two square mile space. Uh, so that is, really incredibly powerful and that smoke is rolling across the battlefield you've got armies that have been marching back and forwards over ground for days on end fighting they're exhausted they're tired but they are fighting literally for their lives Uh, and ultimately come the end of the day the British prove victorious they've inflicted 40,000 casualties uh, on Napoleon they've broken his ability to ever wage war and intimidate Europe again uh, and they've driven him from the field uh, with his sort of close cohort of Imperial Guard desperately trying to protect him while the British are hammering around his ears. Now, I would say that this is the most iconic and definitive battle the British have ever fought, uh, with the most far-reaching consequences, both strategically, militarily, economically, politically, but also culturally. Uh, and for that sense, uh, and in that, in that in that regard, I offer it up to your consideration. There you go, Holmes, consider it. Any questions? A few. I mean, you... Um... I think it's fair to say that, you know, without going back into it in too much detail, but we were sort of saved by the Prussians, weren't we? Uh, no. Okay. The, the Prussians played an important part in this battle, don't get me wrong, but that is the, that is the beauty of coalition warfare. 
you rely on your allies. The only reason the Prussians stood and fought is because they knew Wellington would stand and fight. Had Wellington taken his army and made for the Channel ports uh, with the aim of evacuating from the European continent, that classic get out for the British in all campaigns fought in that part of Europe, had Wellington done that, then the Prussians would have turned as well and turned and run. And it was only by Wellington's commitment to stand and fight that the Prussians knew that they could come too. Uh, and when they did come, they, made, they, they played a very important role in throwing it back. But had Wellington not stood there and stood on that ridge uh, and held Napoleon and the, and the French for as long as he did, then the Prussians wouldn't have had anything to turn up to. Uh, and they, in turn, having already been defeated the day before at Ligny, they would have been defeated again. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, what I don't get as well, and this is more for my curiosity, is that they knew the positions that they were going to fight in. The day before, didn't they? Uh, well, the night before. Uh, so they retreat through the night, it's pouring with rain, um, and then they basically have to prepare to fight the, uh, this major battle the next day. Um, why, why didn't Napoleon at that point, if he had strategically a worse position, just not turn up, just retreat and then try and try and battle again another day? Napoleon had a very good position. Uh, he, had a very, he had a very good position on the other side of this valley. He had more guns. He had more men. Uh, and he had the confidence. And as Wellington famously said about Napoleon, Napoleon himself was worth 30,000 men on the battlefield. You know, just seeing him uh, was enough to drive men to incredible things. Um, and so this was a battle that Napoleon had to win. He had to defeat Wellington. If he didn't defeat Wellington, he was never going to drive the other allies. He was never going to reestablish his empire. He was never going to rally more people back to his colours uh, and recapture that territory that had been taken from him just the previous year. So he has to attack. And Wellington knows this. Uh, and, and likewise, Wellington knows he has to stand and fight and win. And then you mentioned um, the British squares, which you know, was one of the really clever tactics that the Duke of Wellington used that day. I don't know if it's worth just going over some of the tactics he used. There's also men hidden just on the other side of the brow of the hill, wasn't there, which was quite an important factor. Yeah, so for, for, for people that don't know the, 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 the landscape of Waterloo, there was effectively a, a valley and the ridge of Mont Saint-Jean. And Wellington draws up his troops on the ridge because he can use the reverse slope for them to shelter from Napoleon's more numerous artillery. Napoleon himself had been a gunner. He was a master gunner. He called his, gun, uh, his guns his beautiful daughters. Uh, and he was a real master of using these. Uh, and so Wellington chose the ground incredibly well, which is a very useful lesson for all uh, military officers in the present day, actually. He, he chose the ground, he chose where to fight, and he prepared his, his positions accordingly. Now, that not only gave him shelter from an artillery bombardment, it gave him the opportunity to hide and mask some of his force of where it was strong, where he was moving his reserves. 
And when Field Marshal Ney, the bravest of the brave, who commanded the, the French left wing, launched cavalry charge after cavalry charge, in fact, took part in cavalry charge after cavalry charge, they hammered up, up and over this ridge uh, and met the British squares resolute in defence and discipline. Now, normally what would happen is when you had a cavalry charge, is your cavalry would counterattack and, and they would face off and drive them away. But unfortunately for the British, uh, Wellington's cavalry was unreliable. It was prone to gallop at everything, in, in his words. Uh, and most of them had gotten themselves killed quite early on in the battle, so remove that from his arsenal. So really what he has to fall back on is this grit and discipline, uh, which is why the men stay in those squares. And the concept of the square is you form four sides with a hollow centre. It's a wall of bayonets, uh, and a horse simply will not charge through it and will veer away. Uh, and as long as you stay in that square, you are relatively safe. Uh, the problem being that if you're in that square and the, art- and the French artillery turns up, you are also a very, very big and easy target. Um, and so enduring the artillery bombardments in square while also resisting the cavalry is just yet another testament to the incredible discipline that the British showed. Um, I do have to say, on the teeth thing, I saw Wellington's um, false teeth. They had an exhibition at Eton College. They actually have loads of his stuff. And I saw his false teeth. And I don't know if he got them out of the mouth of a dead person at Waterloo, but there was green stuff stuck in them, which kind of makes it a bit icky. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure why. Also, if I remember correctly, at the National Army Museum, you've got the skeleton of Napoleon's horse, haven't you? We do in the National Army. We have Marengo, uh, who, who was the horse that, that Napoleon was, was riding at the time. He, he's there amongst stuff that was looted from his baggage. It was looted from Napoleon's baggage, not Marengo's, uh, on, the, on the battlefield itself. And also we have the wonderful Cyborg model. Now, you know, the Cyborg model is in itself a great thing. There's a model that was created by Captain William Cyborg to, as a diorama to show the Battle of Waterloo. And in itself, it, it, it sparked a battle with the Duke of Wellington about whether it was accurate, what happened, whether it paid due credit to the, the Duke's brilliance, all of these sorts of things as well. And so the material culture that exists from Waterloo is, is also brilliant. We also actually, in, in 2015, I bought from, from Sotheby's, I bought for the museum the coat the Duke of Wellington was wearing at the Battle of Waterloo, which is oh, awesome. amazing. <laughs> Clive, have you got any questions? You're going to try it on once, surely. <laughs> no, no that, that, would, that would most definitely not be... <laughs> that, would definitely, that would definitely not be part of the best museum practice. The, there were 118,000 people on the Allied side. Only 25,000 of them were Brits. It doesn't, even among Wellington's army, the, there was a minority of British soldiers. So how can we look at this as a purely British battle? And even if you look at the legacy of it afterwards, Britain had no involvement in Europe for 100 years afterwards. It went around killing people all around the world but avoided ki- killing people in Europe. And at the same time, France and Germany rose to be great powers within Europe over that next century. So what I don't quite understand, I can see that this was the end of tyranny in Europe and things like that for the time being. But why was it such an, an iconic British victory? Okay, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's an Anglo-allied victory for sure. Um, but the reason why it's an iconic British victory is because Obviously, Wellington himself is, a, is, a, is, is, is British. He is the British commander. The army that is there is allied, uh, is Angler, is a, is, is a coalition army for sure. But actually, it's built on the British system. It is a British command. It is British control. It is British regiments, divisions, corps. That's how it's built. That's how it runs. That's how it trained. That's how it's equipped. So in many ways, it actually represents the best of British military history in that we are capable of leading and playing a part in multinational coalitions to achieve a common goal. 
And actually, this is one of the last times that Britain is the leading partner in a global coalition of this nature uh, that is delivered so successfully. Now, I take your point about, you know, it, how could it be iconic if, it, you know, if the British army doesn't have to fight in Europe again for another century? Well, I would suggest that that in itself is, is a pretty devastating reason why it was so successful and why it was so important, because it meant that the, the hostility that had existed on Britain's doorstep since time immemorial had been removed by Wellington's success. And that freed up the opportunity for Britain to, to cast its eye further afield, to push out the boundaries of empire even further and to enrich the whole country, uh, let alone reap the benefits of the Industrial Revolution that came with it. So I think those things contributing together certainly point and, and can be sourced back to, to Waterloo. You know, obviously there was the Crimea in between as well. But, you know, Waterloo made, made enemies into allies. Uh, and I think that always a long-term goal of any military campaign is not having to go back and fight it again. The Industrial Revolution really was part of the 18th century, at the end of the 18th century, and the dynamic growth of the British economy occurred in those last few years of the 18th century, whereas the French and Germans went through their Industrial Revolution some years later. So this, that strength had been developed already. Not sure yeah, exactly. I see... But I'm not sure why I see that Waterloo itself was a catalyst for anything particularly dynamic. And there were wars going on in Europe throughout the 19th century. The French and the Germans and various others were kicking four shades of Watson out of each other for a long time. We just didn't play ball because we were fighting against tribesmen in Afghanistan or in Africa. Well, yeah, obviously you have the Prussian War, but in itself, if you, if you want to talk about consequences, the rise of Prussia can be probably traced to Waterloo as well. Uh, and the success that the Prussians were able to share at Waterloo that meant that come, come 1870. I, I've just done something really horrible to her. I'll reveal it in a minute. But yeah, sorry, Peter. Would you like to make your point without Alina avoiding the inside of her nose? Sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say that, that, that obviously, uh, Prussia, which had been, uh, you know, cowed by Napoleon and then liberated by the Russians and then it was sort of rising and reestablishing itself as a as an independent state, was able to carry the what it had learned at Waterloo and the benefit of Waterloo. In fact, it carries Waterloo on many of its uh, in many of its regiments carried Waterloo as a battle honour uh, forward. And obviously, therefore, that conflict then led to the Franco-Prussian War, and from which uh, you, you, obviously you can draw traces straight back straight back to the First World War uh, f- from there too. Uh, in terms of you know Britain Carson, it is mind afield. You know, I think that. Britain wasn't busy fighting tribesmen elsewhere. If anything, the, the, the army at Waterloo was far more successful uh, and probably more effective than, than the army was later in the, in the 19th century. And actually one of the failures of the British in the aftermath of Waterloo was to allow professionalism and standards to slip and fall behind. And perhaps that's because they didn't have an enemy to fight of the quality of Napoleon or, the, or something that poses direct threat to, to mainland Britain as Napoleon did. Okay, let's move on because Alina's busy. I will explain what's going on with her in a minute, but I've I've truly screwed her for being rude about the Navy. Uh, Let's go into the 20th century. Um, If I was going to pick a battle, uh, my heart would have said, pick Trafalgar. My brain would have said, you don't know enough, you idiot. Go with Somme. Um, Bethany, that's what you've gone for, isn't it? I have, because let's be honest, we all know in our heart of hearts that the most iconic British battle of all time is the Battle of the Somme. I, I end my argument there. (laughs) <laughs> um, it had such a 
resonance. I think the thing that makes, just as an overall statement, the thing that makes it so iconic is the influence that it had on society um, in 1916. And continuing to this day, 100 years later, the influence that not just the First World War, but the Battle of the Somme have on British society right up until this day. Um, the Battle of the Somme itself was, as we all know, originally designed as an Anglo-French offensive at the Chantilly Conference in December 1915, um, designed in conjunction with other offensives with the Russians and with the Italians as well, to all attack Germany within a short space of time, as we all know, punch through the line, end the war, win the war, bang, done and dusted. Um, However, that was slightly put paid to the fact that the Germans bit the bullet first and attacked the French at Verdun in February 1916. Um, French, for, for the French, Verdun was important as, say, Ypres is to the, to the British in society. It, we need, they needed to hold on to it and they weren't going to be pushed out. So all of the resources that could be forced into Verdun were forced into Verdun. And as a result of it, the transfer of the Somme offensive from a 50-50 offensive to a mostly British effort with some French um, influence along the side as they were both in the area around the River Somme. Obviously, any overall objective is to win the war. That is the objective. But primarily what becomes a significant objective for this offensive is to help the French at Verdun. It is to draw away the Germans where we possibly can so that the French don't surrender. The French in this period of time, they are the larger of the two coalition parties on the Western Front. If the French had been attacked by the Germans and overwhelmed and had to surrender, could be argued the British would not have been able to continue the First World War without the French by their side. So it was vitally important that we kept the French on side, kept them fighting. Of course, as well, Battle of the Somme, key for that reason, but another key reason is the fact that it is the first time that our new volunteer soldiers are used for the first time en masse. Some of them have been used at Gallipoli and other parts of the Western Front, But the first time they're all being brought together on a large scale, we've got these troops, these men who are so, who have, they're not soldiers, they are bank clerks, they're miners, they're teachers, they're shop workers, they're ordinary men who have, up until 1914, just been living their life as normal, they are not career soldiers, they of course have been brought into the army with these all the propaganda, the posters, Kitchener's famous poster of the, Brit- the army needs you. The other one um, of the dad speaking to his children and they're asking him, Daddy, what did you do in the Great War? I saw a fantastic one the other day um, about, Daddy, what did you do during the coronavirus? And surrounded by toilet paper and hand sanitizer. <laughs> so it shows how even 100 years later, that poster and the ideology surrounding that poster is still relevant to this day it's still all something that we all know about because of the influence that it's had on British society so very briefly whereas a lot of the battles that have already been discussed they've been it's a single day um, or part of a couple of days the battle of the Somme is not just the first of July 1916 it's depending on your interpretation it's four and a half months of fighting up until the 18th of November 1916 
or there is a case to be said that the Battle of the Somme actually continues until February and March 1917 because there's continued fighting in the area after the winter, after the bad weather. But it's solid fighting. It's four and a half months. It is a long, hard slog. But obviously, the 1st of July 1916 is the date that we all know. It is the day in our respective, in our collective memory. So quickly, very brief fly through of the Battle of the Somme. We're in the Somme. It's where the French and the British armies meet in France. It's rolling agricultural land. There's no great strategic um, importance to the area. Just happens to be where the French and British armies met. So when it was going to be a 50-50 offensive, it made sense to happen in that area so that resources could be shared and pulled together. In the week running up to the 1st of July, the offensive was originally planned for the 29th of June uh, 1916, but bad weather postponed it for two days. We've got a week of bombardment, artillery bombardment. We've got the big heavy guns, we've got howitzers, and all of the other guns firing on German positions. Now, these German positions are incredibly well-developed. The Germans have been in that area for two years. They have got deep bunkers. They've managed to dig right down into the chalk, sometimes 30, 40 feet um, into the chalk itself. Very, very solid. Some have got electricity um, throughout them. They are there to stay. They've got the bunkers, the barbed wire, the machine gun nests. They've got the particular defensive positions, the Schwaben Redoubt, the Leipzig Redoubt. They are there to stay because we can consider really the front, the Western Front and the Eastern Front as well. That's Germany's new border in effect, and they are protecting their border. So they are not, they're there to stay. So the British and the French artillery are bombarding for a week. In the week prior to the 1st of July, 1.5 million shells are fired from the British and the French. Um, over to the German positions and a further quarter of a million just on the morning of the 1st of July itself. As the troops are getting ready to prepare themselves to go over the top, we have the blowing up of 19 mines as well, up and down the Western Front in various places. A couple of well-known ones, we've got Lochnagar, Hawthorne, also we've got various others up and down the Western Front to try and Blow these big positions, particularly say for the Hawthorne, um, Hawthorne Bridge, Hawthorne Mine, is to blow the particular German position that is over, overlooking quite a few number of British positions. So the mines are blown at 7.28, except for Hawthorne, which is blown at 7.20, and the whistle's blown at 7.30. 100,000 troops get out of the trenches, approximately to march forward and gain their objectives. Now, we know the 1st of July was not as planned. There were substantial gains in the south of the um, of the Somme area. It's a 15-mile front, approximately. There were substantial gains in the south with the 30th and the 18th divisions. Um, also, the 7th and 21st divisions managed to take some ground around Mametz and Fricor. Um, We've got the 36th Ulster Division as well with their fantastic story of um, instead of 
getting up and walking out of their trenches, crawling into no man's land while the artillery bombardment is still going on, and then getting up and following the bombardment and running and taking their positions, but unfortunately not having sufficient support in order to retain those positions. Elsewhere, some gains, if there were any, were marginal. Some areas, there's just no success at all. And on that day alone, we there is a significant amount of casualties. There is a reason why we know the 1st of July 1916, and the reason is because it's the bloodiest day in the history of the British Army. We've got 57,470 casualties, of which of those 19,240 are killed. So of the approximately 100,000 who went over the front line at various points throughout the day, from 7.30 onwards throughout the rest of the day, one in five of them were killed. It's a 60% casualty rate overall, so almost six out of ten are a casualty in some form. And that is a huge number. That is astronomical, really, if you think about it. That's just overwhelming. Of course, then, the battle does continue, effectively fighting north of the Alberta Home Road, where we haven't seen much take, land taken, um, is abandoned. And the fighting has continued from the south, where we have had our breakthroughs, um, and we make our way through the wooded areas of the Somme, and those present their own difficulties as well. Um, by the time we get to September, we've taken these woods, we've taken Cosier, and we bring in, we introduce, arguably, one of the greatest military developments. Not at the time, it didn't work the first time, but the development of it since then can be argued that it's been was successful since then but we've got the introduction of the tank obviously Winston Churchill being a great admirer of the tank as the first lord of the admiralty and he really pushed for their development weren't necessarily quite ready to use them which is why their usage on the 15th of September was not as effective um, as it could have been because some of them simply weren't ready a lot of them didn't even make it to the front lines couldn't get over the front lines and there were lots of challenges presented by using the tanks when they did, rather than wait a little longer to ensure that they were um, ready to be used. So the fighting does continue, as we said, all the way through to the 18th of November 1916, or into February if you prefer. And we stop with the last bit of fighting. We have the Battle of the Ankara on the 13th of November, around Beaumont Hamel, to take that village which had eluded us since the 1st of July. And we stop near the Butte de Warlincourt. The British Army has advanced approximately seven miles in that time period. It is land that is important because it means that we have taken from the Germans. It's shown that an, the German army, who had these strong defensive positions, who'd been there, knew the ground, knew what they were doing, were experienced soldiers, it meant that they could be beaten, which was of vital importance. It meant you know, the, the British and the French weren't on the back foot. They could beat the, the they could beat the enemy. Overall, casualty numbers are shocking, really. When you think about the pure number, we've got 420,000 British casualties, of which approximately 130,000 of them are killed. 200,000 French casualties, and anywhere between estimates of 450 to 600,000 German casualties. There's no exact number anywhere, really. 
but it's over a million men have become a casualty of some form in this four and a half month period. Three million men go through the Battle of the Somme and a million of them become casualties. So you've got a one in three chance of being affected by this offensive in some way. These numbers are absolutely huge. Um, obviously, British doesn't just mean British, it means the empire, but I will leave that open to a discussion maybe about empire. Um, but the Battle of the Somme has to be the most iconic because of the influence that it's had on British society, because of these huge numbers. These are men who are not, as I said at the beginning, they're not trained soldiers. They're not, they haven't spent their time campaigning in, in India or in Africa. They've come off their local shop, walked up to their recruiting office and said, I'd like to be a soldier, please. And then whisked into the system, uh, the military system. So that's what, for me, makes it so iconic because of the influence it has had with these, particularly the stories of these men who are just ordinary men, ordinary folk like you and me. You know what? It took Holmes and I nine months, a giant spreadsheet, 300 notebooks and a couple of rows and his cat making decisions to do that story. So the fact that you've just done it so well in about five and a half minutes, well done. <laughs> you were so Thank nervous you. and you've, you've smashed it out of the park. Holmes, you go first. Oh, I was nervous. First time I've done anything like this. So <laughs> you were brilliant. <laughs> Not at all. Holmes, have you got any questions? Thank you very much. Interesting, it, interestingly enough, in, interestingly enough, my cat has just gone outside for the first time all day. I don't know if he had oh, about being manhandled because we have something to decide on the song again and wanted to make himself scarce. But for people that don't know, uh, we could not decide between three Canadians for the very last spot in our book, and um, in the end, we let the cat choose. We put the service records on the floor, and whichever one Jabba went and sat on. Because there was nothing to decide between these three guys, was there? Um, and is it Douglas O'Connor or something like that? So long ago now. But yeah, he's in the book because your, your cat chose him. But evidently he's scarred by the Battle of the Somme. Yeah, I mean, it's undoubtedly in terms of numbers, duration, the, the biggest battle we've talked about tonight. Um, I think in terms of... Um, where I do have, What I do have a problem, a slight problem with it is that Everything you said was obviously correct. I think um, generally the British public have, have misappropriated the memory of it, though. All they focus in on is the 1st of July. And even on the 1st of July, they focus in on anything but the southern sector where there was a success. And it was that southern sector actually allowed us to push on through the woods and go east and then, uh, sorry, yeah, then go east and, and uh, northeast, allowed us to take that ground. And I know people sniff at the amount of ground that was taken, but in First World War terms, even over three of the 141 days, that was still quite a lot of ground. So mm. the concern that I have about awarding it the most iconic British battle is that we might somehow be reinforcing the fact that it's not properly remembered still. No, I, I completely agree with you on um, first-hand basis. You know, I... I work for a company as a battlefield tour guide and I'm very fortunate enough that I get to take school groups out to the Western Front, various locations around the Western Front and tell them this story. Now, what I just did in five minutes, I usually get a whole day to do on the song. Um, but I completely agree with you. You know, when we do these tours, 
we start at either Sare if the farmer's not there or we go to the sunken lane and then we go to Newfie Park, Newfoundland Park and then we go to the Ulster Memorial Town, we do Loch Nagar and we do Teepval. So I completely agree with you in that respect that the memory that's there is not, it's not a true memory, which I completely agree with. Um, you know, we have to be referenced, I have to reference in the fact, you know, 2016, 1st of July, that the big service that was there, you've got 10,000 people that attended the service and you've got um, the ghost soldiers, the, the men who were in the train stations and walking around public areas on the 1st of July. And that didn't happen for the rest of the rest of that time period, even the 18th of November, the last official day of the Battle of the Somme. Only yep. 2,000 compared to the 10,000 were at the same corresponding ceremony. So I completely agree with that. But there is, I think, a societal change. Um, I like to think I'm part of that, being a tour guide. You know, I do, when I speak to these groups, I just say, hang on, this isn't just the whole story. And I know myself and my colleagues that I work with, hello if any of them are listening, um, <laughs> and I hope they are, um, but we do try and bring in the other elements. So, yes, maybe we're starting, you know, from a position where, you know, we've had the 60s and the 70s and we've had the lions led by donkeys and all of the myths that have been perpetuated since the First World War. You know, hey, is he a butcher, a bungler, whatever. That's, that is all, I suppose you could argue, is part of the memory too, that our memory is the fact that, yes, we remember the 1st of July, but we do remember the rest of it too. But in the few years to come, we have to remember, using the word remember a lot, but <laughs> we have to remember both, both the importance, but also remember how, how not to do it in a way. And I, I mean, I think it would be fair to say that from a learning curve perspective, and I know the extent of the learning curve is disputed depending on who you speak to. But there was clearly a learning curve. So although we didn't win, that wasn't a decisive battle. Arguably, we won in terms of territory by the time of the end of it. But I think even if you go to the Battle of Basington Ridge on the 14th of July, we've already developed new tactics in two weeks. I think the key word here is iconic as well, isn't it? Mm. I mean, unless you're talking to someone really stupid, if you talk to a British person and you say some they know what you were talking about. I mean, we were doing an interview yesterday where um, mm-hmm. it transpires that two girls on a Russian quiz show were asked what Holocaust meant and they went for drain cleaner because there's been no education at all. So I think the the key word for me is iconic. Mm-hmm. Clive, what do you think? Um, it wasn't a military, it wasn't a decisive military battle. It, but it was a hell of a sight bloodier than Towton and uh, caused a lot more death than Towton. If everyone's just judging by blood and gore, mm. it should win hands down. But what you've been speaking about, and I think that this is what I've always looked at the Somme from, and I'm not an expert like you or Alex or, any, or James, but it's the impact that the Somme had on society. Mm. Not necessarily what it's having today, but what it's had over the last hundred years. Mm. What do you think the most important impact that the Somme had? Oh, well, I, I think your point in the fact that it's, it's I per, personally, I know there will be people who disagree with me, and that's the whole point of these kind of debates. Um, I think it's the societal 
impact that it had. You know, we, I was thinking about, I almost threw it in, but I didn't. I thought I'd save this bit for questions. But the impact that it had in the immediate weeks and months after is different to how it does, how it, the impact that it has now. I mean, an example is Jeffrey Malin's film, The Battle of the Song. You know, within six weeks of that being um, released in the cinema in the middle of August, it was reckoned that 20 million people went to see it in the in the in Britain. Now, considering that the population at that time of the UK was approximately 34 to 35 million, it would be like saying today with our population, I don't know, we've got about 65 million. It would be like saying 50 million people all went to see one particular film at the cinema, or even it is higher. Statistically, yeah, still the biggest, comparatively, the biggest grossing film. Um, if you take inflation into account ever. But I think mm. what's important, and the way I'd frame it, is it's where we go from a bloody war with quite a lot of dead people to mm. an all-encompassing thing where you have entire towns where there's multiple people on each street who've died on one day and where you go to what leads oh. to a war memorial in every village. That, for me, is the day that I mark the shift. But it's not my argument, so I'm going to shut up. <laughs> Could, could I could I suggest something? <laughs> could I suggest something else then? Mm. That the Somme, the Somme, among the, all the horrors of the First World War, stands out as probably the pivotal moment that people stopped doing what they were told to do, but asked why they should do it. And the Somme lies really at the root of our democracy. Because remember, when the Somme was fought. Most of the men who fought in it didn't have the vote, and no women had the vote at that time. And it was from the horror of the Somme and the refusal thereafter to accept being told you just have to go off and die that democracy evolved, that popular politics evolved, which is still with us today. I think we need to be slightly careful with the being told that you're going off to die. You've got to remember most people who fought in the First World War didn't die most people didn't even get injured. So I think we need to be slightly careful of that particular narrative. But you're right in terms of the vote. And once you signed up, you had little choice to do other than you know, what you were told, unless you were an officer. Let's move on to our last verse. Because you've been waiting patiently this whole time. And she's either doing other work or she's been diligently scribbling away notes about all of your arguments because she's about to take you all apart. Um, Claire, are you ready? <laughs> I've been really enjoying listening to everyone else's sort of pitches for their battles. Um, I, th- I find it absolutely fascinating. And yet I still think that the Battle of Britain is the most iconic and trumps the lot, obviously. Um, so am I launching in? Go for it. Launch. Okay. So Battle of Britain, we all know, the Second World War military campaign to defend Britain against a very large-scale attack from the Luftwaffe uh, took place between the 10th of July and the 31st of October 1940, although some German historians do say it's, uh, they have the whole of the Blitz as a single campaign, actually, but I'm taking it as those few months. Um, it's actually the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Britain this year, so I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it as well. Um, so... Under the, the brilliant command of men like Air Chief Marshal Hugh Dowding, 2,927 pilots uh, served in the Battle of Britain. These are the people that Churchill referred to as the few, the famous few that are iconic, just that phrase uh, within our history. Um, Winston Churchill, of course, said, 
that never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Never. Just remember that. So um, what happened? Well, the RAF were, they were also outnumbered and outgunned. Um, and yet over 2,000 German aircraft, Luftwaffe aircraft, were shot down. Uh, as a result, the RAF managed to maintain air superiority over the Channel and over Britain, and it was a decisive victory, which is, of course, the first thing we're looking for in a battle. Uh, it was the first major defeat of Germany, Nazi Germany, in the Second World War, and it was a truly crucial turning point in that conflict. Um, because of the Battle of Britain, Britain wasn't compelled to negotiate a peace settlement. Um, and there was, until this point, a very real threat that Britain was going to have to surrender. Uh, at the time, it wasn't a given. We all think the, battle, uh, the Second World War, of course, we won it. But at this point, if we hadn't have won this Battle of Britain, we wouldn't necessarily have won the war. So... Um, it, following from that, because we won air superiority, of course, it prevented Hitler's plans to invade Britain by sea and air under Operation Sea Lion. So this is my first sort of big gun reason for why it is the most iconic battle in British history. The Battle of Britain enabled victory in the Second World War. Britain was able to fight on. We fought with our allies uh, in 1941, joined by the Soviet Union and the USA, of course, and eventually collectively defeated Nazi Germany. So basically, well, arguably, the Battle of Britain saved the world. Uh, imagine a world in which Nazi Germany had won. Let's not go too far down that route. But um, And of course, there were other decisive victories in the Second World War, battles at Leningrad and Moscow and so on. But I argue that the Battle of Britain was the first real turning point in the Second World War. Um, but now, that seems the obvious reason. That probably alone is enough to carry this. But I can marshal a whole battalion of other reasons why the Battle of Britain uh, is so important. Um, some of it, I get some sort of modest reinforcement here from uh, British pioneering technology. Uh, the wonderful, the, the best aircraft was the British aircraft, the highly manoeuvrable Spitfires. I've interviewed people like Mary Ellis, who delivered the Spitfires and some of the pilots as well. Um, some of them told me that it, it felt like flying a Spitfire was having wings growing out of your shoulders. So incredibly important. Hurricanes as well. We mustn't diminish the importance of them. Easier to fly, larger, um, better visibility and so on. Also technology in other regards, like our pioneering radar network which prevented any surprise attacks on our airfields and enabled our fighters to intercept the enemies as they were coming in and so on. But now I can see on horizon the arrival of several squadrons of other further impressive reasons coming up. <laughs> um, Nicely done. Um, <laughs> So we talked a bit with some of the other people about the legacy of these battles and I think the impact on society. And again, the Battle of Britain can't really be challenged on this and because itself is so challenging. It challenged so many uh, preconceptions in society and it, I suppose, demonstrated above all the importance of diversity. So this is in a range of spheres. For example, perceptions of disability. Everyone knows Douglas Bader. He had lost both his legs in an air crash in 1931, nevertheless went on to serve with distinction in the Battle of Britain. This is 74 years before the Invictus Games, people. Um, but it already, it's really beginning to start to change attitudes. And a couple of people have mentioned films that have followed or, or pop songs and so on. We all know um, Bader in some of those films. Secondly, 
the Battle of Britain, in a sense, led to a change in some of the racist structures of Britain, for which I think it also needs some celebration. So shockingly, I'm afraid, the RAF had a colour bar. Uh, it sounds such a nice thing, like a tab on a shoulder. Of course, it's appalling racism until October 1939. Um, the Second World War forced that to change. But even though there was a sort of formal end to discrimination, it was still very difficult for uh, diverse pilots to enlist. Um, it was actually the losses of pilots during the Battle of Britain that showed the desperate needs for pilots. Um, and so in November 1940, the RAF started recruiting men such as Flying Officer Jellico Schoon from the West Indies and many, many more. So although it is limited, there was still racism. Of course, the RAF was more advanced regarding race than many of the civilian employers of the day. And the Battle of Britain was a catalyst that moved that on. Sexism too, the Battle of Britain helped to change some of our perceptions on gender roles. So admittedly, some of the female uh, ATA, Air Transport Auxiliary pilots, only delivered hurricanes and spitfires from the summer of 1941 after the battle. But the WAF, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, were very heavily involved in maintaining and repairing aircraft and barrage balloons through the battle. And they also performed various other functions like meteorology and so on. Very crucial roles at the end of the war quarter of a million people had served in the uh, women had served in the WAF that's a fifth of the total of the RAF and they were of course an integral and vital part of the RAF's war effort but I think above all the Battle of Britain testifies against that myth that Britain stood alone the Battle of Britain I mean where this comes from is that this battle took place of course after the Nazi invasion of Poland, the Blitzkrieg, the the invasion and occupation of France and the Low Countries, and before the Soviet Union comes in in June 41, and before the USA joins the Allies in in, um, December 41. But it wasn't just British pilots, and I think this is a strength for the British. Before people were talking about, oh, are they English? As if the diversity was a negative. I think this is a real strength. Um, So 80% of the pilots that served in the Battle of Britain were British, and of those, 407 were killed in action. And the highest scoring ace in the Battle of Britain was Eric Locke, uh, a British man. He killed 21, uh, he had 21 victories on his own in the Battle of Britain alone. So there is a huge amount for uh, uh, British civilians to be proud of, or citizens to be proud of. But the other 20% of the pilots, that is 574 of them, 103 of whom were killed in action, actually came from a whole range of different countries. So, of course, there was, you know, what was once the empire, especially New Zealand, Canada, Australia and South America, uh, occupied European nations as well. Poland, Czechoslovakia, as was Belgium and France and Ireland and the USA all contributed pilots. Um There are so many fantastic stories, but I'm just going to focus on one because of time limits. Um, So let's let's think about the Polish squadrons, because it's just an unbelievable, real boys' own type story there. Um, So in September 1939, when Poland was um, uh, invaded and occupied, a large number of the Polish pilots managed to escape Poland, and they went on to serve in France. Uh, Originally, the Polish government in exile went off to to Paris. Um, So the Poles had experience in the, in the invasion of Poland, then in the battle for France. And then in mid-1940, as France itself was invaded and occupied, 8,500 Polish airmen, out of 35,000 Polish servicemen altogether, by the way, came to Britain to carry on the fight. 
And originally, at first, the air ministry in Britain and the RAF were quite hesitant to use them. They, I think they felt that, you know, these guys had already been defeated in Poland. And, and also there was an, a language issue. They, they needed to be trained in English. Um, but eventually they were, well, first they were posted to the RAF Volunteer Reserve and there were two bomber squadrons, 303 and 301. But in July 1940, the RAF accepted two Polish fighter squadrons, 302 and 303, and they joined the Battle of Britain in August 1940. I've got to say various, about 50 Poles took part in other RAF squadrons as well. But anyhow, basically the two main Polish squadrons joined the Battle of Britain when it was already halfway through, and yet they got the highest number of victories or kills. 303 itself was the highest scoring squadron within one month of joining the battle, um, partly because they they were so successful because they flew at closer range and they inflicted greater damage, but of course that meant that they had much greater risks. 30 of them were killed in action. And in fact, the highest scoring non-British pilot in the battle wasn't a Pole, it was a Czech man, Joseph Frantisek, but he did fly with a Polish squadron. So just to summarise why the Battle of Britain is so iconic, um, first of all, we have the scale of the military importance of this engagement. It's the first major defeat of Nazi Germany in the Second World War. It is an absolutely crucial turning point in the war, preventing the invasion of Britain, buying time, enabling the uh, the Russians to change their mind, join the Allies, the Americans to come in, eventually, ultimately enabling, enabling the Allies to secure victory against the Nazi threat. It also changed our nation for the better in so many other ways. The Battle of Britain demonstrated the vital importance of diversity, of judging people on what they could do and what they achieved, not on who they were assumed to be. So rather neatly, it kind of underlines the defeat of Nazi ideology at many different levels, and it shows the strength through alliance. Overall, it is this fantastic story, a great story of daring do up in the skies, uh, a story of human courage and perseverance, ingenuity, technologically as well, of friendship and of sacrifice. And I think the Battle of Britain is a powerful lesson about the strength of collective effort. It embodies the triumph of collective forces for good, and it both radically and permanently changed the history, not just of Britain, but of the entire world. Thank you. I knew you were going to smash it. That was epic. Round of applause. Um, done that one, proud. Clive, Thank any you. questions? Hello? Yep. Hi. Hello? Any questions? You're still there. I'm sorry. Yeah. Cracked up. Um, the Battle of Britain was, I mean, it is one of the most iconic battles in some ways because it's got a film with Sus- Susanna York in it. That we were brought up on as kids. It has other factors also. <laughs> yeah, but that, that, as I, icons go, that's really getting up there, isn't it? Um, when I, I was a twelve-year-old boy, <laughs> but was it the decisive battle in the Second World War? Surely, the Battle of the Atlantic was more important. Yes, as I said, absolutely. There are several decisive battles during the Second World War. But the Battle of the Britain is the first. If that had failed, all of the others would have been irrelevant. You don't think that the Soviet Union would have withstood the invasion of the, the, invasion of the Soviet Union without Britain being there? 
I think the the Soviet Union was very keen to have two fronts all the way through. That was of huge importance. So it's debatable. What certainly, without any doubt, is how important it was for how Britain ended up after the war and the shape of what was what was happening in Europe and the world. I mean, there's all sorts of different things, ways it could have gone with different allegiances and alliances um, between what we see as the allies. And you must remember that, I mean, I think that the, I think that we, I think you're right, we don't talk nearly enough about the Russian contribution and the Russian losses, the Soviet contribution, I should say, and the Soviet losses. Um, and I think it's important to recognise that, absolutely. But we must also remember that the Soviets started the war on the other side, and it was only in 1941, in June, with the um, Operation Barbarossa, when Hitler rather insanely uh, decided to invade uh, the Soviet Union, his erstwhile ally, that they joined the Allies. And, and that just sort of shows there was potential for all sorts of different dynamics to go on. So I think the fact that we, the Battle of Britain was such a decisive victory early on changed the shape of the war and obviously the result. Holmes, you've got any questions? Yeah, one, and I, I feel one needs to tread slightly carefully about this one compared to some of the others that we've talked about. Um, but some historians have, have made the claim that actually Hitler either wouldn't have invaded or wasn't that bothered about invading. So although obviously everyone involved in it was either phenomenally brave or phenomenally committed, but is it as decisive as you're saying it is? Well, I think it is. Um, I think they were brave and committed, but I think you need to add, if you say a list like that, you have to add effective at the end of it as well. Let's not uh, deny them their achievement. But also I think that Hitler, if Hitler... Hitler had plans to invade. Operation Sea Lion is quite well documented. Obviously, he would much prefer to have done an alliance with Britain earlier on, but that was never going to happen. That wasn't going to be on Churchill's agenda. So I do think that there would have been a conflict. Maybe he'd have timed things differently, but absolutely. I mean, I I do rest my case. I think it was that strategically important, yes. And is there... It's almost like when we talked about the Somme a while ago, are we slightly over-romanticising this? And obviously the pilots and everything were very brave, but behind them you had um, the WAF, as you already mentioned, you had the, you had people who worked on the observers, the scientists who worked on the radar, yeah. the arguments that Bomber Command played a role. Well, that's right. That doesn't make it a lesser victory. I mean, a less important or iconic battle. I think it makes it even more important. That's why I've mentioned the technology, the women who serve, the diversity in all sorts of different ways. These are all the things, the richness of this, that give it extra weight. I like it. Um, If any of you are wondering on the video feed why Alina has been so quiet and why she disappeared and why James disappeared, it's because I paid her back for being rude about the Royal Navy again um, in that three minutes after she was rude about the Royal Navy, Johnny bailed because he's scared of Clive. Um, He said something about work and having to do something something adulty, but really it's because he's shit scared of Clive. So I said to Alina, right, that's it. You've got 20 minutes and then you can argue for Agincourt in his place. Alina, go. That's quite a nice hand. So you've you've asked a concentration camp historian from the 20th century. Who was snippy about naval history. Who was snippy about naval history. Doesn't do military history at all, by the way. So anybody listening, I am not a military historian. I have just done this in 20 minutes. So please bear with me. And if you could just say after me now, and I am a very, very bad girl. (laughs) I am a very, very bad girl.
Go on, Agincourt, why? <laughs> right, Agincourt. Agincourt was fought on the 25th of October, 1415. At least I got the date right. Uh, <laughs> near Agincourt in northern France, where England won against a superior French army. King Henry V of England led his troops into battle. That, within itself, should be the deal-breaker, people. Well, actually, that's one of two things that should be the deal-breaker. So, But the French king, King Charles VI of France, did not, as he suffered a psychotic illness, poor King Charles. It is incredibly well documented by at least several accounts and three from eyewitnesses compared to, for example, mine and Claire's and Bettany's and Alex's sources, which are continuous and, you know, there's loads of them. But we have three eyewitnesses, people. I mean, come on. So, you know. Well, how did it all start? King Henry V invaded France after the failure of negotiations and he claimed the title of King of France. He said that he would give up the claim to the French throne if they paid 1.6 million crowns, which was outstanding from a previous ransom, and that Henry would marry Catherine, the French king's daughter, and receive a dowry of 2 million crowns. But, as usual, the French mocked the English. The pissed-off English invaded France on the 13th of August, 1415. The army was made up of 12,000 men and up to 20,000 horses. They ended up sieging the town of... I don't speak French, so uh, Hafleu. Claire's <laughs> face right now is a picture. <laughs> She's just like massaging her, her head, like, oh my god. Hafleur, yeah. <laughs> I'm on Alina, you can do this. And they surrendered, the town surrendered on the 22nd of September. So about six weeks of, of, of a siege happened and they gave up in six weeks. So the English army suffered lots of casualties, but that was mainly through disease. Henry tried to march north back to Calais, but the French moved to block them and they were successful for a time. But the English eventually got around them and kind of made a run for it. The French ended up shadowing the English army and finally they ended up facing each other in battle. Yes, that is me turning over my notes. <clears throat> we do not know the precise location, but there's a lot of speculation. Go read Wikipedia because I can't be bothered to tell you. Or some internet thing or, or a book. I don't know who's written a book about it, but go read a book. Dan Jones French... must have covered something to do with Agincourt some, at some point. Dan Jones, Bethany's let me know. Him. Yeah. French casualties were catastrophic, apparently, with 6,000 deaths, uh, and entire noble families were completely wiped out, especially the male line. So bye-bye French people. The British say that there was between uh, 112 to 600 British deaths. I don't know. In those days, you can't really tell. I mean, you know, people do loads of different statistical things. It, the results of the battle caused a lack of unity within France. Henry V ended up having loads of successful campaigns. He came home a hero. He was like the great king. He ended up um, claiming, um, securing the claim to the throne, which also paved way for successful English conquests. And he also managed to subjugate Normandy in 1419. But why does this deserve the most iconic battle? How many of your battles, okay, have been immortalised by Shakespeare? None. Zero. So this battle is iconic because it was immortalised by Shakespeare in the play Henry V. Thank you very much. I've won. Goodbye. You know what? Well done, Alina. Everyone, <laughs> Claire's <laughs> clapping you, but you're on mute. Um, 
Uh, I'm not going to subject you to any questions, but well done because you literally had 20 minutes and I'm pretty sure James did most of that for you and he, he looks disgusting with your argument. But well done. That was good. A, a valiant Actually, effort. no, she did all of it. I, I kept asking her. <laughs> James, I just admitted. Go on. Question, but the reason that Charles VI didn't turn up is because he thought he was made of glass. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And when I, when I looked at that, because I thought bollocks when I read that, and then I looked at it, and it was quite a common thing at the time, and apparently one unfortunate man was convinced his buttocks were made of glass and that sitting down would smash them into flying shards. He was afraid to leave his house in case a glazier tried to melt them down into a window pane. comment there about him being French, but I'm not going to. Let's not be snippy. Let's just concentrate on the glory of uh, British uh, achievements on this. Um, right. While the judges quickly make their decision, I'm just going to go around the room um, like we always do. Uh, Bethany, if you um, couldn't have the Somme, who's got your vote? Uh, Waterloo. Claire. Waterloo. James. I'm actually going to go Trafalgar. Everyone made some great arguments, but Trafalgar's just picked it for me. Yeah. Owen. I'm going to go with Toten. <laughs> James, Thank is you. that guy got a friend? <laughs> Peter. <laughs> I'm, I'm going with the Somme, if only as much as anything, because that was the one that I was going to argue as well, but I would have done it much less effectively than Bethany did, so I'm glad someone <laughs> did really well. Dave? Um... Going for uh, Hastings. Okay. Alina, you go in this one, not the judges' one. Who got your vote? Um, Although, granted, well, you weren't really listening to the last three because you were panicking about having to argue for Agincourt. Of course I listened to Claire. What kind of rubbish yeah. is that? You're going to go with Claire because uh, you mentioned Polish pilots. Well, it's okay. I'm going to go between Claire and Battle of Waterloo. So okay. I'm a 50-50. I, I cannot choose between Dave and Bethany, I'm afraid. I'm really proud of you, Bethany. I would have argue exactly the same stuff um but i i just i have a love affair with nelson that i cannot transcend uh right so clive holmes clive first where do you stand it's a difficult one because i think every battle that's been mentioned stands in its own right as uh, a very important and seismic battle in our history battles don't fight each other and there is no kind of real objective league table but looking through them all and there are other battles like the defeat of the armada and lots of other things that could easily have been up there but looking the most seminal the one that actually is probably the foundation battle of our whole nation is hastings it's absolutely there the only battle that could rival that is eddington where alfred could have brought the whole of england together so I think as an iconic British-English battle, Hastings must be the one. Owen's looking very smug right now. It was beautifully presented. <laughs> Holmes, who have you gone Thank for? Thank you, five. Thank you. <laughs> Holmes, do you concur? Um, no. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I do. I mean, it was, before this started, I thought it may well be 1066. I mean, I think for the record... Towton. I mean, you can't even buy a fridge magnet for the Battle of Towton, can you? So, <laughs> uh, what English heritage or well, historic England do manage the site, so possibly. But <laughs> so, and then I thought at the start it would be between 1066 uh, Battle of Waterloo 
and the Battle of Britain. Uh, the Somme is something that I'm very close to, and Bethany did a really good job, but I don't mm. think... I think the lack of an overall clear, decisive victory probably harmed that one. Um, I think um, ultimately I'm going to agree with Clive. It was a tough one at the end. It was between, I think we both agreed it was between the Battle of Waterloo and 1066. And Claire gave a really persuasive argument for the Battle of Britain to the point I think it persuaded us more than we thought it would do before the start. But I think if you look at the overall legacy and the effect of where we are today and where you can see it's clear influence. I think it has to go to the Battle of Hastings. Oh, Peter, so close. Could I add that I'm probably the only person among us who hasn't who remembers it? No, who hasn't. <laughs> okay, <studied right. laughs> I wasn't quite around then. I have been around for a few of the others. But I'm the only one who hasn't studied history. My primary source for any historical knowledge is 1066 and all that. And that's okay. what... It points very much to 1066 being the, the major battle ever. And it was a good thing, apparently, as well. Guys, thank you so much. Um, we've had a really... This is probably the, the most sensible, sensible debate we've had and the most um, comprehensive in terms of arguments as well. It's been fantastic. I actually think people will sit and listen to this and won't feel the need to get really, really rat-faced to sit through it. Um, so thank you very much, Peter. So near, but yet so far. Um, Dave, thank you. Owen... Well done. I now have to go and uh, design a cocktail after, named after the Battle of Hastings. I'm aware I owe you all a... Is it... What do I owe you? Vlad the Impaler? Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, no. I, it's um, the Warlord one. Alexander the Great. Uh, yeah, I owe you a honey-based Alexander the Great thing based on the, the thing. Claire, <laughs> thank you so much. Bethany, you're amazing. This is going to be the first of many, many um, appearances. Thanks to our standing judge, Clive, as well. Holmes, thank you very much. And Johnny, you're a wuss. But we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, guys. Tune in this weekend for some amazing content. Tomorrow we bring you a special for Anzac Day commemorating uh, Gallipoli and Australian national identity with Matt McLaughlin. We then bring you an interview with Bethany Hughes about her last book, Venus and Aphrodite. We thought you could all do with a bit of love. Uh, and then the big one on Sunday, we bring you Hornblower's Reunion. We bring you Yoan Griffith and Jamie Bamba talking extensively about their lives filming Hornblower, what it's done for their careers, what they enjoyed about making the series, what was a nightmare. Uh, they sat with us diligently until we worked through pretty much all your questions that weren't about Battlestar Galactica. Don't forget that you can now become a patron of History Hack uh, by going to historyhack.podbean.com and donating as little as a dollar a month to keep us going after this crisis is over. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatio Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.